Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are going to begin a teaching series that I introduced uh, a couple of programs ago. Uh, And if you have not listened for the last several programs and are just now picking back up again, you may be asking the question, well, where is this overview of the chronological sequence of end-time events that uh, Steve's been <laughs> talking about for the last number of weeks, uh, which, which would be his uh, next big teaching series? And, of course, in that uh, series, we're going to cover 30 prophetic events beginning starting with today and going forward through the end of the book of Revelation, which, of course, covers eternity. So from now through all of those end-time events, of which there are at least 30 major ones that I want to talk about, and I've put them in as best uh, a chronological order as I can understand from a study of the Word, and we will review those in kind of a 10,000-foot perspective, and then when we finish that series, we're going to take several of those key points of prophetic future and really, really dig into them, and so those will make up a number of series going forward from then. But as I finished up our last teaching series several programs ago, and that was the the one entitled Why Study Bible Prophecy, why we need to develop a strong foundation of understanding of uh, Bible prophecy and how important it is for us as a Christian not only to strengthen our own faith, but also for us to have an understanding of what God's plans are going forward, not just for you and me as a Christian, but also for the nation of Israel and for the unbeliever, because God talks about what he is going to do, what he has prepared in terms of, unfortunately, in terms of punishment for the unbeliever. And when you talk about sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with an unbeliever, or perhaps with someone who uh, might be what we call a carnal Christian, somebody who has professed Christ but is having a difficult time growing in the faith, uh, usually because they have not had the discipleship from a loved one or someone who brought them to a saving knowledge of the Lord or perhaps their church or whatever. These are the people that uh, really are our focus. The focus of the church is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we we think about the good things. We think about what Jesus uh, says he's going to do for us and has prophesied and told us, matter-of-factly, this is what I'm going to do for those who uh, uh, have faith in me as uh, the Son of God, as the one who died on the cross for their sins. Um, and that's important to understand, but that's really all we hear about. What we don't hear about, and what is I think is, is just as important, is what's going to happen to someone who says, well, I hear what you're saying about Jesus, and I'm frankly not that interested. I don't I don't like what's going on. They'll make up all kind of excuses about why 
they don't want to be in church or they don't understand who this Jesus is. And it sounds a little odd to me or some, you, you know, you, you fill in the blank or they'll say, Hey, I'm a good person. I have a great relationship with God. God, and me, we're buds. Uh, and I don't mean to be sarcastic there in any way or sacrilegious, but that's kind of the way they look at it. And it's because they don't have a relationship with him. And why do I say that? Uh, as we talked about, oh, I guess three three lessons ago, three um, programs ago, we went to Luke chapter 10, verse 22. It says, you cannot know the God of the universe, the creator God, unless you first have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to believe that he is the son of God, that he came to this earth, he died on the cross to shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins, and he was glorious, resur- gloriously resurrected on the third day that, so that you can have the eternal hope of uh, eternity uh, in the presence of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. That's what we have ahead of us as the church. Um, but to understand that if you don't accept Jesus Christ, there is a horrible eternity ahead of you And if we understand that, I think that it gives an even greater sense of urgency, a sense of value to what you're sharing with a person. Not only what Jesus can do for them, but here's what what happens to you if you reject Jesus. And of course, as we know in Matthew 7 and other places, uh, that gate that leads to eternal separation from God is is awful wide, and a lot of people are going to fall into it. So if you have a, a greater, broader understanding of who God is, that is that is so important. And that's what we try to get across when we talk about Bible prophecy, because a lot of prophecy has to do with judgment. Uh, there's going to be good judgments, such as for the church, and there's going to be a lot of bad judgment for those who deny uh, Jesus Christ and deny the Father. So we uh, we got into all of that, and, and we, we felt that there is such an importance that we have some key prophetic terms clarified for us so that what we learned in why study Bible prophecy can be further fortified, a stronger foundation developed by getting these seven terms across. And again, just as a quick review, we're going to compare and contrast seven terms or seven sets of terms, the first one being the Son of God compared to the Son of Man. Number two is the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. Number three is the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace or the gospel of personal salvation. Number four is the Olivet Discourse or the Discourse on the Mount of Olives. And the other one is the Upper Room Discourse. So we want to see the distinct difference between those two. And then we wanted to talk about the Gog-Magog battle. There are two battles by that name, but they are distinctly different from each other. Then we have the sheep and goat judgment, and we're going to contrast that uh, with the great white throne judgment. Again, two totally different judgments. And then finally, we're talking about the covenant promises to national Israel Uh, compared and contrasted with the covenant promises to the church. Two very distinct and different plans that God has. So it's so important, I believe, that we understand 
the difference between those seven sets of terms, because if you get them uh, more clearly understood in your mind, and again, we talked about several of these during our Why Study Bible Prophecy teaching series. So this is, uh, in some respects, reiterating them. We're going to go into more detail, as you can see by looking at the worksheet that's available for you here at the radio station uh, on their website, whcbradio.org, and look for Exploring Bible Prophecy. You click on that, and you'll see a hot link uh, for this worksheet, and you can download it. And that's what we want to get into today. So I'm excited about this uh, teaching series that I've kind of uh, wedged in between Why Study Bible Prophecy and then this uh, broad overview of uh, prophetic events that if you're like me, I was excited, I am excited about getting into that um, as soon as we can. But I think uh, this uh, short teaching series on these important prophecy terms uh, is necessary and valuable for us as we go forward. So let's go ahead and, and look at our first one on the worksheet, and that is the Son of Man uh, compared and contrasted with the Son of God. And we'll start with the Son of God, and, he, and I want to point out first, as I hinted at in the end of our last uh, teaching uh, portion of our program yesterday, that we want to look at the Son of God. And the reason I have the Son of God is because the Bible talks about different uh, groups that are referred to as Son of God. And you may or may not be aware of that, so we want to look at some scriptures to bring some clarification of that and hopefully uh, provide some um, information for you that you can share with others that helps us understand that when we talk about the Son of God, we're talking about an aspect of a characteristic of God, of Jesus that is different than when we talk about the Son of Man also referring to Jesus. And again, we're going to get into that in detail, as you can see from the multitude of scriptures that I have that we're going to go through. But let's go ahead and establish why we need to understand the Son of God compared to just Son of God. So the first place we want to go is the book of Luke, the New Testament book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we want to go to Luke chapter 3. Now you uh, probably recall uh, or may not know that there are two chronologies of Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament. Um, the first one, um, location-wise, is in the book of Matthew, and it's interesting, Matthew takes Jesus back to Abraham. So Jesus, uh, Matthew takes Jesus' genealogy, his bloodline, from his birth back approximately 2,000 years to Abraham, and that's when Abraham was born. Well, he was born roughly 2100 B.C. But he starts with Abraham because that's when the nation of Israel started, and of course that's the focus of Matthew's whole gospel is to show Israel who Jesus is, that he was the king of that had been promised to them. And then we have the genealogy of Luke, and that is found in Luke chapter 3. And here, Luke takes the bloodline or the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. So as the Bible talks about, um, Adam was the, the first man, the first Adam. Jesus was the second Adam. And that through the first Adam, sin came into the world, and through the second Adam, 
we were given forgiveness and we had a way of being forgiven for our sins that were initiated through the first Adam. So that's what I want to look at here to, uh, to make the point. And I want us to look in Luke chapter 3, and I want us to look first at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And this is the beginning of Luke's description as he goes through um, the genealogy of Jesus. And in Luke 3, 23, it says, when he began his ministry, and he's referring to Jesus, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So we see that beginning of the genealogy, and you can see this is from a uh, physical perspective because they're now referring to Jesus as the son of a man, and that would be Joseph and his wife Mary. So we know, obviously, that Mary played a very integral role in the um, birth of Jesus, but Joseph, we know, had nothing to do with it. But if you're an unbeliever, that you know you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you look at Jesus as the Son of a man, because this idea of being the Son of God just doesn't doesn't match up with what your beliefs are or what you've been taught, unless, of course, you're a Christian. So then we know he's the Son of God. And we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But as we go through this genealogy uh, from verse 23. I want to take you all the way to the end of Luke chapter 3, and that's verse 38, and look what it says. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And you think, whoa, wait a minute. This says that Adam is the son of God, but of course you notice First of all, in my Bible version, the word son is not capitalized. The S is not capitalized. But Adam, the first man, is referred to as the son of God. Now, why would God or why would the Holy Spirit uh, lead Luke to write that that, uh, Adam is the son of God? Well, who created Adam? Adam was created directly by God. No one else, no other thing intervened in this process. Adam was directly created by God. So that's the key to understanding uh, where we're going here with the next few verses, is that these entities that I referred to in our last program, as well as the beginning of this one, the entities that are listed in the Bible that are referred to as sons of God are entities that are direct creations of God. And that's the key point that I want to drive here. Direct creations of God. And the first example is we have is of Adam. And he is the son of God because he was directly created by God. So this is Luke chapter 3, Luke's genealogy. And let's go to the book right before the book of Revelation. So if you can find the book of Revelation, which should be easy, it's the last book, and then work your way back, and it's that one chapter book called Jude. I'm sorry. I'm not Jude. I saw the J and I jumped. I'm sorry. I want to go to Job. (laughs) I want to go to Job. Uh, Job's a little bit longer book, 
And it's probably uh, a lot of theologians today believe that Job was the uh, oldest book actually predating Moses, the oldest book in the Bible. And Job was quite a character. And you find him in the Old Testament. And if you can start uh, thumbing through, if you can find uh, First and Second Samuel, and then you get First and Second Kings, then you get into First and Second Chronicles, then you get into some small books, Nehemiah, Esther, and so forth. And then you'll come to the big book of Job. So we want to go to the first chapter of Job. So we want to go to verse 6. Job chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So we find out here, not only here, but in in, uh, succeeding passages here in Job, that the sons of God are angels. The sons of God, just as Satan is an angel, the sons of God are are angels. Angels, like Adam, are a direct creation of God. God created the angels. They did not have offspring, and, and this is the thousandth generation of the angels. In fact, the Bible tells us that the angels do not procreate. So the angels are a direct creation of God. If you are a direct creation of God, you are therefore a son of God. So we see Adam as a son of God. We see the angels, as we see here in Job chapter 1, are the angels are sons of God. All right, now let's go to Romans. So let's go back into the Old Testament. Come way out of the Old Testament into the New. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And we want to go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And let's make another point here. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. And it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are sons of God. So who are they that are being led by the Spirit of God? Well, in the context of the Scripture here in Romans chapter 8, he's referring to the church. And you say, wait a minute. I was born of a mother and a father. So I am, therefore, a creation for my mother and father. Yes, you were. That was your first birth. But there's a second birth, and that is your spiritual birth. And it says that when you are born of the Spirit through a belief in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We were in Romans, so you just go through 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, in our next program, we're going to explore this just a little bit further before we move on into um, 
the foundation of Christ through the Israelites as the Son of God that we want to talk about uh, and make the distinction between the Son of God and the Son of Man. But I just wanted to clarify, and we'll finish up in our next program, that Adam is a son of God, the angels are sons of God, and the church are sons of God. Okay, let's go ahead and transition over to our question that we try to answer at the end of each of our teaching programs. And this is one that we've been working on for the last several programs, and it has to do with a question from a listener in Abington. Do we know where Israel is taken to hide from Satan in Revelation 12, 14? And we have spent time over the last several programs uh, going to Revelation 12, verse 14, and then in the spirit of looking at context and the proper study of God's Word, we look at the verses that come before Revelation 12, 14, as well as those that come after. So we looked at Revelation 12, verses 5 and 6, and then we looked at Revelation 12, verses 13 and 14. And we found out that this is a uh, event where Satan is attacking the Israelites, and this is the remnant of Israel that is uh, counted by God as righteous, and God is now protecting them by hiding them in the wilderness. And we asked the question, and we uh, started to wrap up the answering of that question in our last program about why didn't he do this in the first half, that this seven-year tribulation is a horrible period of time. And we saw in Revelation 6, verse 8, that a quarter of the earth's population dies in the first half. And then we saw in Revelation 9, verse 15, that another third of the world's population dies in the first half. So why is God not protecting Israel in the first half? That's when we went to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So let's, that's where we wrapped up in our last program. So let's go ahead and start there and move forward. Daniel chapter 9. So if you find Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then you get to Daniel chapter 9. And this is the, the great and wonderful prophecy of Daniel about Israel's end-time events. This is one of the best um, blueprints, if you will, for understanding God's plans for Israel in the end-time events. And we see in Daniel chapter 9, the last verse, and he, and that he is referring to the individual up above the prince who is to come to destroy the city. He's referring to the Antichrist. Um, referring to the Antichrist. So in verse 27 it says, And he, the Antichrist, will make a covenant with the many. And who's being talked about here? Your people Israel. So the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. For how long? For one week. And of course in the context here, this Revelation, or excuse me, Daniel 9 prophecy is talking in verse 24 about 70 weeks. And this is 70 weeks of years. So it's 7 times 70, and that's 490 years. And through the, the flow of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, we know that 483 of those 490 years has already been completed. And it was completed at the crucifixion of Christ that we see in verse 26. And then um, there is a period of time this last 2,000 years from the crucifixion of Christ where God turns his attention away from Israel and turns that attention to the church. 
And then, of course, the church is going to be raptured out, and then the tribulation begins. And that tribulation is this verse 27, one week. This is the 70th or last week of Daniel, and this is the tribulation. And it says that he will make a covenant of many, verse 27, for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And so basically, this is what Jesus talked about when he quoted Daniel in Matthew 24, this um, abomination and desolation is the midpoint where the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel and goes into the temple that Israel has built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, uh, what we call the third temple, and it's built in unbelief because they don't recognize the Messiah. And of course, we know from our prior study that the fourth temple is the one that Jesus will rule from during the millennial kingdom on the Temple Mount in Israel, in Jerusalem. But here is the third temple. So during the first half of the tribulation, Israel, unlike any other people, and this is important to understand, unlike any other people group in the world at that time, Israel is being protected by the Antichrist through this covenant. And of course, uh, when we get into studying that covenant later on, we find out that this is a covenant with hell, as Isaiah describes it, and God talks about it as well, that it's a covenant where the Antichrist is protecting Israel, and Israel is accepting this covenant. Why? Because they think at that point in time that the Antichrist is actually the Christ, that they are believing this lie because he is looking and acting and talking like Jesus. So they're thinking that he is the Messiah, and ultimately that's why they invite him into the temple at the midpoint. So the reason uh, that Israel is not uh, fleeing to the wilderness through the protective hand of God in the first half is there's no need for it because they are being protected by the Antichrist. But at the midpoint, when that covenant is broken, again, Daniel 9, verse 27, at the midpoint, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And of course, when you do that, that's the most despicable thing you can do to Israel is to take away their ability to, to sacrifice because they've been waiting for 2,000 years to sacrifice on the Temple Mount. They finally have their temple, and then at the midpoint of this agreement, this, the uh, Antichrist takes that temple um, access away from them and breaks that covenant and actually turns around and starts attacking Israel. And that's what we read uh, in our passage from our listener in Abington. We read in Daniel, or rather in Revelation chapter 12, the Antichrist turns on Israel and starts attacking them. Well, of course, we know <coughs> from our prior studies that God protects Israel because Israel is his wife. Israel is his chosen people. So he gets personally involved here in protecting Israel and takes that remnant of righteous Israelites and, and takes them into the wilderness somewhere and, uh, you know, a short answer to your question uh, from the listener in Abington is no, we don't know where that particular place is in um, the world, but we have what we think is a pretty good idea that it's a place called Petra. And we want to talk about that in some detail and look at some scriptures that might lead us to have a, 
better understanding of why we think that the Israelites will be escaping to Petra in the second half of the tribulation. And we'll cover that when we get back to this uh, question from our listener in Abington in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.